Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Robbinsville. Thank you for joining us. We trust that the teaching of God's Word will speak to you. Well, good morning, church family. Thank you, worship team. We got some people under the weather, so really appreciate you guys being healthy, uh, <laughs> showing up. <laughs> Well, this past week, many of you heard, we were given the the opportunity to go out east with the youth group. So we had, I don't know, like eight student leaders and then a a busload of youth, and we met Frank and Jasmine and the the youth from Emmanuel Baptist Church out east, and we just got to spend a weekend with them for our annual youth retreat. And uh, man, we had a lot of fun. I picked up a cold like I do every year, so I'm, I'm on the end of it, but if you hear that in my voice, that's what's going on. Uh, but man, we, we played a lot of games, way more basketball than I've ever wanted to play in my life. Uh, lots of card games, practical jokes on one another. And then we also got to do a work day with Emmanuel Baptist Church. We got to partner with David and, and with some of the other leaders at IBC and, and just help them out with some projects that, you know, been on the to-do list, but it's, it's hard to schedule a time to do them. And so we got to help with that. Uh, we also created a space for a lot of personal study with the youth, and this is really the value of this trip every year. This is why we invest the time and the money and the energy into this trip. And so the youth, I think like three separate times, were given 45 minutes, and they were given the Word of God, and then just time. And so they were encouraged to go off by themselves and read, study, write down what stands out to them. And then afterwards, we would get together in small groups with each student leader leading maybe three or four students and talk about the things that they were learning, the things that stood out to them, the questions they had. And the theme for this year was, who do you want to be in 2023? And this really was an invitation for the teenagers to come and to wrestle with that question through a biblical lens, a biblical worldview, we challenged them to put pen to paper, write down what their goals were for 2023. Who did they want to be at this time in 2024? And uh, we came away just really encouraged by the conversations and the study that we got to have. Uh, but I tell you what was really fun was to see how that study lined up so well with the sermon series that we are currently in. Now, I didn't plan that. It just, you know, this is, this is how things happen. And that's amen. Uh, and so two weeks ago, Ben introduced this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he framed this as Jesus' idea of what it means to live the best life. And you know, if, if we're honest with, with ourselves, that's really what everybody's after, right? How, how do I live the best, the way that turns out the best for me? And so here in this sermon, Jesus joins his voice. With, with these famous philosophers that you read about in history or, or, you know, watch on the History Channel or whatever, he joins his voice with them to share his ideas of what leads to the happiest, the best life for you. Except Jesus as a philosopher is different from all the rest. You see, throughout his ministry, we see that Jesus perfectly lived up to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. We see him die for his beliefs And today, through his resurrection, he beckons all of us to come 
and live a life based on his teachings so that we too can experience this blessed life that he lived on earth. This morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 verses 9 through 12 as we wrap up the Beatitudes and this introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached. Before we we dive into the scripture though, I invite you please to pray with me this morning. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for just allowing us to gather here together and for this church family that you have uh, created here in Robbinsville. God, I pray that you would open our eyes today, open our hearts and our minds to your scripture. Help us understand the wisdom of Christ through the Beatitudes. Lord, I pray today that you would stretch our understanding of what uh, our, our terms are, what, what even definitions of words are that we kind of take for granted, but that Jesus is inviting us in this sermon to wrestle with and to change our definitions to align with his. God, I pray that you would give us clarity as to how this applies in our lives and give me clarity of, of speech this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 9, we're going to look at this beatitude first. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now if you remember back to last week, Rance made this observation that every beatitude is actually a picture, a description of Jesus himself. And so if you want to know what Jesus means by peace, whatever comes into your mind, try and, try and put that aside, right? We're trying to get into the mind of Christ. How did he show off what it looked like to be a peacemaker? And if you want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, look at what Jesus did time and again. So how does Jesus live as a peacemaker? Now, that's a harder question to answer than maybe it sounds, Uh, Consider that in Matthew chapter 4, before he comes and preaches this sermon, we have him leaving the wilderness temptation. And when he, in Matthew, he comes out of that temptation and he hears that John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod. This isn't the Herod from the Christmas story, it's his son, Herod Antipas. And he has arrested John based on his teaching. He was calling, uh, calling Herod out for some sin in his life. So Jesus hears that his cousin and that this forerunner to Christ's kingdom is arrested, and Jesus goes to Galilee, Matthew records in chapter 4, verse 12. Now that, we can read right over that, but what Matthew is trying to tell you is Jesus hears of John's arrest, and he goes right into the middle of Herod's kingdom. And when he gets into Herod's kingdom, which is, is Galilee, Christ preaches this Sermon. So I want you just to picture what is going on around this sermon, right? Herod has arrested the forerunner to Christ, so Christ responds not by sending some peace envoy, right? Hey, how do we release John? Let's cut a deal. No. He responds to Herod by going right into the middle of Herod's kingdom and proclaiming that a new kingdom was here. Now, perhaps that understanding helps us when we get to a a scripture like Matthew chapter 10. Just five chapters after our beatitude this morning, look what Jesus has to say about peace. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. That's interesting. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Man, what do we do with that? This sounds very different from Matthew 5, 9. So the question to ask is, what does this scripture reveal about Jesus and how Jesus defines peace? You see, often you and I, we think of peace as really just kind of an absence of conflict. It's kind of what happens to us, right? We, We can take this passive approach to peace. But Jesus says, you know what? He's gonna bring conflict. And actually, probably a better way to understand this A better way to understand this would be that conflict would come because of his message. You see, Jesus is a peacemaker who people respond to with violence. How many peacemakers get crucified? And for those who accept Jesus, he does offer peace. But for those who reject him, they oftentimes respond in violence to him and to his followers. Oftentimes, that conflict, as Jesus mentions in Matthew 10, it erupts between members of of one family. And the reality is many of you sitting here today have felt that type of conflict, that type of persecution coming from your own family. Okay, so Jesus' definition of peace doesn't, doesn't really fit into how we typically think of peace. So what does Jesus mean by peace? Well, the Jews that were listening to the Sermon on the Mount, they would have understood the peace that Jesus was referring to as shalom. All right, you've probably heard the word shalom. And when we interpret that into English from, from Hebrew, we interpret it as peace. And that is, a, that is a picture of what shalom means, but shalom is, is bigger than that. Shalom encompasses a whole lot more than just peace as we tend to think about peace. It, it speaks to this idea of wholeness or completeness. And, and, and it really carries this idea of flourishing with it. So wherever shalom reigns, you find flourishing. And so you think back to the Garden of Eden when God was first making all of creation. And on day six, he makes Adam. And he looks back at everything he creates. And do you remember what he says? He calls it very good. He had just created a world that was at peace with him, a world at peace with itself. He'd created an existence in shalom. And Adam and Eve got to enjoy that creation for a time, right? Until they ate of the fruit that God had said, don't eat. When they did that, when they broke God's instruction and they invited sin in the world, shalom was broken. And we've been dealing with the fallout of that ever since. Now, from our Bibles, we know how the end of the story goes. We know that one day God will bring down a new Jerusalem and that he will once again restore shalom to the world the way that it was meant to be from the very beginning. But between Adam and Eve and their decision to eat the fruit and this new Jerusalem that will come with a new shalom, the history of man has really been the history of God partnering with individuals to bring shalom, at least in part, back to the world. 
And so the Old Testament is full of this. We get to see God partner with men like Noah, right, who in his day, every thought of every person was wicked all the time. And God finds this one man and this one family, and he seeks to partner with them to restart so that shalom might be reintroduced in some way into the world again. We see him choose Abraham and say that through you, I'm going to make a nation that will point all the other nations back to me so that you would be a light in a dark world. We see him go down that line of Abraham and, and reach a guy named Moses, right? Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery and give them a, a land that they can dwell in so that they can better live out this calling of a chosen people. And then we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God working with the nation of Israel in order to, to establish shalom. And yet the sad truth is that all of these partnerships fell short in restoring shalom in some way. Each time, man proved not to be up to this task. And so then we can enter Jesus, right? It's in the midst of this broken and, and fallen world that God takes on flesh and comes as the prince of peace. Not just a prince who's going to stop all fighting and all war, but a prince who will restore shalom to the world. And while we await on his second return to restore shalom in full to, to the earth, in Christ's first coming, he gave us access to a life lived in shalom that was never available before. Ephesians chapter 2 shows Christ as this shalom maker. Paul is talking about how Christ has bridged the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles, these two people that were always at odds with one another. And, and look what Paul says through the Holy Spirit about Christ here in Ephesians 2. He says, For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made both one, both Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You see, this is saying Jesus didn't just come to bring peace to us, that he is our peace. That, and he stepped into a world that was divided between Jew and Gentile, irreconcilable differences. And he joined both sides into one new man, manifested in the church. You see, Christ came into division, into racism, into hatred, and he created equality and love and unity. And even more than the peace between people that Christ created, he also won lasting peace between man and God. You see, sin has always been an obstacle to knowing and living in relationship with our Father. And much of the world was and, and still is at enmity with God because of their sin. So Christ took on their sins, and he, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that he could bridge that gap. He voluntarily gave up his life on the cross 
so that he could give us peace with God. So that the Almighty could live in relationship with man, not just as, as some judge over us, but as our Father in relationship with his creation. And it's that relationship with God that brings in shalom into our lives today. You see, what Jesus is saying here with this first beatitude is that the blessed life is experienced by those who live at peace with God. Jesus reveals that peace is, is not this passive state of being, but rather it's an active thing that you and I get to choose to pursue. The peace that he offers takes us out of survivalism and ushers us into this life characterized by flourishing, a thriving, an abundant life. And what is required from us? Simply belief in Jesus as God to have access to this. Belief that Jesus came to earth, that he died for our sins, was buried, and three days later he arose from the dead. And at that moment that you believe in Jesus as God, you have access to this peace. A peace that the rest of the world can't even begin to understand. You see, the peace that Jesus brought is so much deeper, it's so much stronger, so much better than any peace that the world has to offer around us. Now, most of the time, we define peace based on those circumstances, right? The world would, would just consider, if I'm not actively at war with somebody, if, if we're not in a fight, if I'm not actively worried about something or upset, then I must have peace. Jesus offers peace independent of those circumstances. It's a peace that we can live in, in this, this state of flourishing, even when the world around us responds to Christ and responds to us as his followers with the sword. Our peace is not dependent on anything outside of Christ because he has already given us access to shalom through his death on the cross. In fact, Jesus told us that that kind of peace was our birthright once we believe in him. Look what he has to say about it in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, this shalom peace that he died to bring is yours at the moment of belief. So we can just pause right here and let me just encourage you that if you came in the doors this morning carrying on anger or fear or bitterness, drop it. Don't pick it back up on your way out. God has taken care of of that, and, and Christ has ushered us in to live in a peace that leaves those things behind. So what, what, what does this look like? Right? While Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, he has also invited us to come and make peace as well. Because the best life is not just about you laying your stuff down, it now includes the, the, the blessed life includes those who bring peace to those living in chaos, right? That when we now, in the shalom that we have found, go to other people in their brokenness and take that same peace and show them this different way to live, oh, now we all experience this life that is even more abundant than it was before. When we partner with Jesus in bringing shalom into the world, we are acting as sons and daughters of God. So the picture from the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, 9 is that our Father sees us partner with him as shalom bringers 
and he says, that's my kid. That we are, are showing off his character to other people, and he's proud that we carry the family name. So what does this look like? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us a picture of this. It says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, even though they were rightfully ours, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How often do you picture the Almighty begging his creation for something? That is an absurd picture, but that's exactly how the Holy Spirit describes God pleading with you and I and with the world around us. God's pleading, God's begging is that this world that lives at enmity with him would simply accept Christ's free offer of peace, that you would enter into a relationship with God. And so do you see from this verse how we become peacemakers as well? Who is God pleading through? He's pleading through you and I as believers in Jesus that we would then go to this world that doesn't know this type of peace. And so the question is, does the way that you live your life and the way that you interact with the people in your world, does it stifle his cry or magnify it? You see, reconciliation with God, it goes beyond salvation and it goes into every aspect of life. God has called us as his children to walk into broken situations all around us and bring his shalom to people who are in desperate need of it. As peacemakers, we're called to step into broken marriages, into family dynamics that are marked by chaos. We're called to walk into generational curses and help bring our brothers and sisters into this peace from Christ. But to do so, we must be at peace with God ourselves. See, recognize most of the world, sadly, many believers as well, are still fighting a battle that Christ has already won. He is simply pleading with us to join him in this victory. As I was thinking over 2 Corinthians 5 and this reconciliation, this peace that's already ours and our job to bring this to other people, I was reminded of a story uh, from World War II. There was a Japanese soldier named Hiro Inoda. And uh, he was fighting on the island, on one of the many islands in the Philippines. And in 1945, he was fighting against Americans who had come to the island. And uh, the Americans won a victory in the Philippines. If you know your history, they moved on. But Inoda was one of just four Japanese soldiers on this particular island to survive the attack. And they continued to, to live out in the jungle and, and to do guerrilla fighting well, if you know your history, you know not long after, in that same year, 1945, America forced the surrender of Japan. So the Pacific was finally at peace again. But Inoda thought differently. You see, Inoda, out on his little island, he heard the reports that there was peace between the Americans and the Japanese, but he didn't believe it. 
Instead, he chose to believe that this was just more allied propaganda, trying to get Japanese soldiers to lay down their arms. And so Inoda kept fighting. Inoda lived in the jungles of this island in the Philippines, waging, waging a guerrilla warfare, attacking civilians, until 1974. Y'all, he fought this war 29 years after his nation was at peace. Until finally, his commanding officer was flown in to tell him for sure that the war was over. And man, you just look back at somebody that lives their life like that, 30 years of fighting a war that nobody else was fighting, and you think, what a wasted life. And yet the challenge for you and I is that anybody that lives at odds with God, even believers who are not living in his peace, are just like Enoda, fighting a war that's already been won, living lives of desperation when Christ has provided a way for us to experience life how he intended it to be lived, a life that's marked by shalom, by flourishing. And if that fighting describes you, let me just encourage you, lay your weapons down today. And if it describes somebody that you know, well, go show them how to live in this peace as well. Now, hopefully, this understanding of peace and what Jesus meant by our role as peacemakers makes it easier to understand why Jesus follows this beatitude in verse 9 with the beatitude that comes in verse 10. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, we can pause that and just think, Okay, what are you talking about? How can being persecuted be attached with the best way to live? This seems like absolute foolishness. But once again, if we want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, look at what Jesus did. And so this time we're going to go to Luke chapter 23. This is in the middle of, of Jesus' trial uh, before Pilate and before his crucifixion. And, and we'll just pick up the story there. Luke 23, when Pilate heard of Galilee, where Jesus was from, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he, Jesus, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he, Herod, questioned him, Jesus, with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Okay, we can, we can pause the story right here and just recognize this would have been like the ultimate revenge story. All right, this, this is Herod Antipas, who's... If you remember, you know, Jesus on this side, Herod on this side, Herod Antipas' dad, he's the guy that had kicked Joseph and Mary and Jesus out of Bethlehem. He's why they had to flee into Egypt, because Herod was intent on killing every single baby boy in the village because he just wanted to make sure one of them was Jesus. This is Herod who's imprisoned, imprisoned and then executed Jesus' cousin, Jesus' close friend, 
and the forerunner to Christ's ministry, John the Baptist. And now this same Herod is standing face to face with God in the flesh and mocking him. And can you just put yourself in Jesus' shoes in this moment, standing there with access to unlimited power? What would you feel like doing? I know for me, man, that temptation to just strike him down and then maybe, you know, get on with whatever needs to happen, like that, that would be a pretty pressing feeling in my mind. And yet, what does Jesus do here? He opens not his mouth. Like a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And he leaves us to wrestle with this. Why? What is Jesus modeling here in this moment? Well, I think from this story what we can say is that the blessed life is experienced by those who choose the kingdom agenda over personal desires. Do you see how upside down this kingdom and this wisdom of Christ really is compared to man's wisdom? You see, the world says that if you want to be truly happy, if you want to live your best life, then just go do what you want. Follow your, follow your heart, right? Christ tells us no. The best life comes about by submitting yourself and what you want to our Father in heaven and following after his agenda before our own. Christ says that a life lived for personal desires may produce instant gratification, but it leads to long-term despair. And instead of that type of life, you and I can follow the example of Christ, put our personal desires under the authority and the direction of the kingdom of heaven, and live for it instead of ourselves. And with that challenge, that understanding of what the blessed life looks like, Jesus then takes the next two verses as he finishes the beatitude and he turns them specifically to you and I. Look at the wording here. He says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, in this moment, Jesus, all these other Beatitudes had said, blessed are those. And now as he reaches the conclusion to, to this introduction, he says, blessed are you when this is true of your life. Because the blessed life is experienced by those who would rather suffer with Christ than live in comfort for self. It reminded me of another story. I was listening to a pastor who had been to China for a few mission trips, and he was talking about one of these trips to China. His goal was to train leaders. And so he flies in, he, he gets to the hotel where they're going to do this conference, and, and he's got 22 leaders of the Chinese underground church coming to meet him. And to get there, they had to ride 13 hours on a train. They get to this hotel in this city in China, and to, in order not to draw attention to themselves, they go up two by two, right? You don't want a big procession going up to this hotel room. Well, when they all get packed into this little room, it has no air conditioning. All it has is, is hardwood floors. And these leaders of the underground church in China gathered around, packed in, and sat for like three days under, under this teaching, under training to be better equipped 
to lead the church in China. And as this American pastor was watching all of them file in and sit down, he kind of got to thinking. And he asked them, he said, what's going to happen to me if China finds out that we're here? And these 22 leaders, they say, oh, you'll get deported and, you know, we'll get three years in prison. And he caused them to stop for a minute. And he said, okay, how many of you have been to prison? Out of 22 leaders, 18 raised their hands. And this opened up a discussion in this room about their, their zeal for the gospel and how they functioned under persecution. And he heard stories of these leaders of the underground church in China who would be in prison and their friends would smuggle in pieces of paper where they had copied down passages in Scripture. And they would hide it. And, and these prisoners would, would pour over it for as long as it took to memorize these sections of Scripture before the guards could find the paper and confiscate it. And they said to, to this pastor, they said, because while the guards could take our paper, they could never take what was hidden in our hearts. And so this pastor, over the course of this three-day training session, he just grew to love these people and, and to, to just love their heart for Jesus and for the gospel. And so at the end of this training, and he's fixing to come back to America, he asks them, he says, how can I pray for you? How can my church pray for you guys here? And one of the leaders of this underground church says, you know, we want to be like you guys. In America, you can gather wherever you want. You can gather whenever you want. And however large numbers you want to, however publicly or privately that you want. And would you just pray that one day we would be like you? Well, this pastor said to, to their amazement, he said, I won't pray that. And of course, the Chinese leaders were shocked. And so he explained himself. He, was, he explained how he had gotten to see faith that had been brought to wholeness through persecution. And he was blown away by the genuineness of these leaders' faith, their, their tenacity for the gospel. And then he compared it in unflattering terms to the state of the church in the United States. And so he concluded saying, I will not pray that you become like us, but I will pray that we become more like you. We just see a story like that, and you put it in, in context of this beatitude. Isn't it interesting that what we would oftentimes see as an outcome to be avoided at all costs, right, the state-led persecution for our religious beliefs, Christ sees this as an effective tool to sharpen us and to grow his church. Why is it that we feel sorry for our persecuted brothers and sisters? We pray for them, and we should. They need boldness. They need courage to stand. But at the same time, we would do well to remember that all who want to live a godly life will suffer persecution. There's a nasty, false doctrine that has come up in our culture and in really the Western church in general. And it's this idea that drives us to avoid suffering at all costs because all suffering, it says, is bad. Understand, that is a lie that comes from the enemy. You see, the enemy wants us to feel like we must avoid suffering at all costs. He wants us to live in bondage to our comfort. He tells us that suffering must mean that we are living outside the will of God because God would never allow his children to suffer. Recognize the enemy tells this lie because he is afraid. 
He fears a church that is filled with Jesus' followers that are undeterred by the prospect of suffering for the kingdom of heaven. You see, while, while he speaks this lie that all suffering is bad and we need to avoid it, Jesus tells us that those who suffer for his sake are truly blessed. And he gives two reasons in, in verses 11 and 12 as to why we are blessed when we suffer for his sake. The first one is simply the reward is great. When you look at the rewards listed in the Beatitudes and, and, and really throughout Scripture, these are incredible rewards that are meant by God to push us further in devotion to him. They're meant to motivate us because we keep an eye on the end. You see, he's prepared these rewards that we, we can't even really fully imagine what all they entail right now. And he's prepared them and he promises that they are worth whatever suffering and persecution that we endure right now. And because of his peace that he's given to us, even in the persecution that we face now, we can still live in a state of inward flourishing because no persecution can separate us from the love and the peace of God. And the second reason that he gives to tell us that we are blessed when we suffer for the name of Christ is because those who suffer for his sake join the prophets who came before us. Those men and women of God that we learn about in the Old Testament that we see time and again in the New Testament as well, who served him at all costs. A few years ago, we did a study on Hebrews 11, and if you were here for that, you remember some of these men and women that we got to study, whose faith in God pushed them to do amazing things as they partnered with our Father. One of these people was Moses, whom Hebrews 11 records as, as this. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. See, a guy like Moses... He had all the comforts, all the wealth, and all the power that the most powerful nation in the world at the time, Egypt, had. He had a life as a prince for the rest of his life he was set. Any want that he could have you know, imagined, Egypt was the place to fulfill it. And yet, he looked at everything that he had in this life, and he chose instead to cash in his chips and to suffer with the people of God for righteousness' sake. And what's interesting is that despite the persecution, despite the hardships and the trials, Moses lived a blessed life. And not once in Scripture do we ever see him regret that decision to leave Egypt behind. You see, the world says that in order to have peace, in order to live this, this you know, the, the best life, you've got to give a little. You know, meet, meet somebody in, in the middle here. What the Prince of Peace is saying is that he's called us to a ministry of reconciliation, unapologetically, faithfully serving him no matter the consequences and the persecution that we may face. This message may bring persecution from those who refuse his peace, but even in that, Christ assures us that we are blessed. So the only question for you and I, having looked at these Beatitudes and specifically our call to be peacemakers even in, in persecution, is simply, will you join him? Will you be a peacemaker, first of your home and then of the community around you? Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for the wisdom in the Beatitudes. We thank you for uh, this greatest sermon ever preached that you have saved for us through your Holy Spirit, guarding it. God, it is overwhelming to think that you desire to partner with us to bring your peace to a world that is broken and in desperate need of it. God, I pray that you would open our eyes that we would see ways in our lives where maybe we are still fighting, ways that we haven't allowed your peace to come and rule our lives and our homes. God, I pray that you would make that abundantly clear to us this week, Lord, that we would fight for that, for peace, that we would be peacemakers in our home. And then, God, I pray that this would be a church that sends its people out to make peace in our community, in Western North Carolina, across the state, across the world, God, that we would be a church that you are proud to call your sons and your daughters. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you were encouraged by the teaching of God's Word. If you have questions or would like more information about our church, you can find us at www.robbinsvillefbc.org or call the office at 828-479-3423. God bless you and have a great day.